You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everyone. This is, well, it's morning in Central Standard Time. Not, it's afternoon here. Guten Chodesh. And uh, it is Chodesh Nisan. Uh, good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Ralph. Good, good morning and a good Chodesh. Yes, I can tell. Good so, so, Today is going to be somewhat, it's a Rishchidish Nisan, an incredible day, uh, a day that Chazal say took 10 crowns, 10 incredible things happened. Maybe, you know, uh, the greatest crown is yet to come. Benissan Asin Ligoyal. Nisan is the time for the redemption. And it's definitely something we need to, uh, I think, get ready for. So, I'm not saying that, you know, obviously these are difficult times. Difficult times sometimes are a portent of something great on the horizon. Let's hope that's where we are right now. So let's try to strengthen Lerman Otairo. As we said, this is Lili Nishmas, Shalom Ben Yudah Leib, Shanari Leib, I'm sorry, Shalom Ben Ari Leib, Lili Nishmaso. So I want, if you can see the screen in front of you that you're sharing with me, we are on the third level of this sugya of Haseba. Uh, the first level, of course, was about Haseba and wine. And we did the double take about that was the first part. Haseba, of course, means the body language and the body movements or you know, the body stance during the mitzvahs of the night. Eating and drinking. Uh, I should say, by the way, before I move on, there's an interesting uh, comment by one of the great uh, Kabbalists and Jewish thinkers, even people who don't study Kabbalah, are very influenced by him, Rabbi Shia Levi Horowitz, the Shlach HaKodesh. You might have heard that name, the Shlach HaKodesh. Uh, the reason why he's called the Shlach is because... Um, the name of his book is Shnei Luchot Habrit. That was the name. I'm not, again, I have to figure out why he used that name. I think it's because he had an idea of how the book was going to be organized. Uh, and it's a book, what we call Jewish thought, tinged and permeated by, tinged in some places and permeated in other places with mystical ideas. And that is the, and that's the safer we call it the, the Shua. The Shua HaKodesh, as he's called, Mishael Levi Horowitz. And um, he writes that he believes that even though we talked about that languorous sense, that aristocratic sense of your body just, lang- just lying there and enjoying, he says during the story of the Seder, he actually feels you should sit straight up with attention. And we'll talk about that more. Because I don't see that from the Talmud page. That's his 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 gut sense that, come on, eating is one thing, but while you're actually telling the story, you have to have the fear of God in you. And we're going to talk about the fear of God in a, in a minute. So that's the Shlaw's opinion that during the Seder itself, you should actually be sitting straight up at attention as if you're in front of the master teacher, which I don't necessarily get that impression from the Talmud. But that was the Shlo's opinion. 
And I think that's a, a good segue into, as I'm saying, there's the sugya of Haseba versus of what we're eating. And we talked about Matzah and the Gemara's main approach was about the wine. And that's where we went back and forth. Yesterday, we talked about how to do Haseba. That was the second part. How to do it to make sure that this in no way generates a danger to your body the food coming into your system and the way your body is as important as the play acting and the experiences and what you're supposed to process. Number one is Sakana. And that's what we talked about yesterday uh, in terms of danger. If we take a look, uh, uh, we also started talking about the idea of who is this, in, does the swath, does the net include everyone who's part of the mitzvah? Or perhaps it only includes some people. That was the third part of the sugya. And we're going to finish that third part today. Uh, I, I have to stop by around 12.50. So we have about 30 minutes. So let's take a look at the page you see in front of you. And now it's easier to start from the bottom of the page. So starting from the bottom of the page, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven lines from the bottom of the page. Okay? So, if you can see where my cursor is. When you say the bottom of the page, did you start at uh, Halalu or did you start at Haya? Okay, so let me, let me be clearer. Eleven lines of the, uh, eleven lines from, if this is the, the key text, the Talmud text, uh, Josh. This is Tosfot. Mm-hmm. This is Rashi. So eleven. If we start here, this is the final. I just can't see your marker. Uh, so when you say you start here, I can't oh, see where oh, you're. Oh, where oh, you're oh I thought I thought you can see the cursor moving. You can't see the like cursor. on the on the little. Just in my screen, I don't know about anyone else, but um, okay, that, like leg part, the, the foot part. Okay, so I'm gonna, okay, I don't hear you well. Let me, like the straight rectangle. Okay, let me explain it then. <clears throat> the Talmud page. I can see the cursor. You can see. Move it around, let me see. See the cursor moving? Yeah, I see, I see you moving it. I'm okay. not sure. So, the, I'm not sure why that's okay. so the thick Hebrew letters in the middle of the page is the Talmud. Okay, the Talmud is sandwiched in by commentary right. on the side. The l- final line of the Talmud page. Right. I'm going to call that line one from the bottom, and then I'm going to count up eleven. One, I see now. Two, That's three, three, okay. Perfect. Great. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. This is the okay. These lines we're going to do today is, I think, will, um, and we're going to go from the eleventh last line to the to the penultimate line. I'm going to try to do ten lines if I can. If I can't, we can't. But we're going to try to at least look at these ten lines. Here we go. Some of it is review from yesterday. Isha Eitzelbaila, as you can see. Now this has to now. Uh, I did a little research right before we uh, started today, and I found that in many manuscript editions, these 
two words were not in the Talmud. The words right after the word Isha. <clears throat> we ex- we explained that this uh, passage yesterday, based on um, Rashbam, who, as we said, is the key commentary here on the right, taking the place of his grandfather Rashi. He said the question was, does a woman in today in the time of the Talmud, when she's submissively supposed to be sitting there, and that was the norm to be submissive, should we have her do something that is unusual, like acting as if she's aristocratic and free and, and in front of her husband? That was the question, the the way the words of the Talmud, the way they're on the page. Isha Eitzel Bala. While her husband is there, if she's in the kitchen having her own Seder, we said yesterday, that wasn't a question. The question is, if she's with her husband. Doing a little research, I discovered, and you're going to find this often, uh, this is your classic text, but it doesn't mean it's the definitive correct one. It's the one that got printed, and it's the one everyone's going to study. But many times, the printers were not necessarily, they weren't Moses, they weren't Moshe, they weren't Joshua, they weren't Yeshua. (laughs) Who they were, were men who were trying to get a product out, and they were working, transcribing manuscripts, and then setting them in, in typeset in what was the original printing presses of the 15th and 16th centuries. And that became, because it was a printed book, and because it was so easy for that book to spread, that became the standard text. However, manuscript copies of the Talmud still existed. And those manuscript copies indicate that the printer sometimes added a word or decided on a word that wasn't necessarily the prevalent one in the manuscripts. I know what I'm saying is very complicated, but it's really very logical. How did this become the standard text? It became standard because it became available. And it became available because it was inexpensive. Money is about it. Money pushes everything. The Talmud, of course, for years before the advent of the printing press, was also studied. But it was studied at great expense because you needed to have your own personal copy written for you by someone who could spend the time and effort to write it. And you, of course, had to be able to read it and keep it. And it wasn't in beautiful letters like this. Eventually, again, as the printing press developed, the need for the Talmud was considered crucial. We need to get the Talmud out. That's our great book. What now? How do we decide what's in the Talmud? So they actually, the the Italians who were the leaders here, uh, worked together, Jews and non-Jews together. It was the Christians owned the printing presses, and they hired Jews, many of them turncoat Jews, Jews who had at one time been Jewish and then decided to uh, take off their Judaism but still retain their brain and their understanding. And so you had people working for the non-Jewish printers who were actually brilliant men who weren't that religious anymore. In fact, weren't religious at all. But they had knowledge. They lived like Christians, in fact. But they had knowledge of 
the manuscripts and the Talmud texts, and they worked with these printers to create a product that religious Jews would, would, would lap up like hotcakes. And that's what became the Talmud text. Now, um, the <laughs> part of what the, the printers would do is uh, create a text, the key text in the middle, that would jive with the commentary. Once it was decided, for example, that the commentary of Rashi, or his grandson in this case, would be printed, they didn't want to confuse the readers by having a text that seemed to be out of sync with the Rashi or the Rashban. So therefore, in the standard text, the standard text sometimes only aligned with this commentary. But the other commentaries, people who lived the same period who wrote commentary, and they, of course, lived before the time of the printing press, we can see from their writings that they didn't have the text that we have. And therefore, this is an example of one of these cases. And I'm going to go back to it now and make my point one more time. These two words were added by the printer based on the commentary that we did yesterday from Rashi or Rashbam, which is the whole question is only because her husband's around. That's the question whether she should be leaning because the husband and wife's dynamic was one where it was sub- about being submissive and understanding what a woman, what the woman's role was. Her, she was scared, in fact, of her husband in a way. That's the term that Rashbam uses. There was a fear, and therefore that would be <laughs> leaning, languorously sitting would be at odds with this sort of, this play acting would be at odds with what the relationship is, and it won't work. That was the comment, that was the, the, the approach of Rashbam, and therefore the key words that they added in the text were Eitzel Ba'ala, only when her husband's around. When, when she's in a room by herself, or it's a, a bunch of girls in a dormitory, and there's no men, they're not married, they're single, they're having their own Seder, that wouldn't be a question. But if you take a look at, at, at the predominant uh, uh, texts, the way that we can uh, perceive, although I don't have manuscripts from 800, 1,000 years ago, but I do have the writings of the contemporaries, the other contemporaries of Rashbam, I can see that they did not have that word in the Talmud. In fact, the question was, does a woman need to be in a state of Aseba? But not because of the submissiveness that she needs to show to her husband, but rather, Isha, this is sort of non-sneas for a woman. Should a woman appear as if she's leading back, right? It might be good for the, like I, I mentioned yesterday, the image of Peel Me a Grey Patty, remember? I talked about these classic films where the women are just sitting there uh, in their chiffon clothing, leaning back and enjoying themselves. But that, of course, was a byproduct of an, of a, of, 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 that was like the, the movies were trying to actually emphasize and get you interested in watching these women because it was putting women on display. So the other way to look at the Gemara's question is not because of the submissiveness, but because maybe this is not sneistic. Maybe a woman lying like that 
is already unusual. It's already set, it's already uh, provocative, and therefore women don't do that. Women don't sit like that. You know, I, my 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 daughter-in-law always is reminding my little granddaughters, don't sit like that. Don't sit with your feet apart, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that's really that's the other way to look at it. Maybe women, it's not. It's a lack of sneers. So that was the question. So let's let's read the Gemara now the other way, taking these two words out. Isha lo A woman doesn't need, even if her husband's not around. Women, this is a non For women, this is considered uh, too provocative. They don't. This is not. This maybe it's something they shouldn't do at this point. However, and now we have the, the, this key term. Im isha chashuvahi. If a woman is a matron, an aristocratic one, then if then is this is not considered presumptuous or or, 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 or or don't think that this is looking like I am uh, provocative. I'm the queen. You not you don't get turned on by seeing the old lady in, in such a position, right? And even if she's a young old lady. This is the queen. In other words, you're not even thinking her as a as a physical, a come-hither type of object. You're only looking at her because she's the queen. The king? I'm the king today. There is no king. If that's her attitude, then maybe there, Isha Chashuva Tzricha Haseva. Because then it's not, uh, 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 again, like, like the same physical stance is different depending on who it is. And it could be actually the same woman with the same physical attributes. But one is a woman who's a commoner, a woman. Oh, boy, look at the way she's looking. That's 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 provocative. But if she's a queen and you know that she's a queen, you know that she's someone rich, you know that she's someone important, then, of course, then the act is not considered provocative at all. So that's a whole different way of looking at it uh, than we talked about yesterday. And, again, this is something that's part of what learning Talmud is. What was the Talmud's question? Was it about submissiveness and the relationship between husband and wife? Or was it about the role of women as sensual objects? Either way, pretty fascinating stuff. <laughs> at least the way I'm looking at it. So this is fundamentals, but I think this is a, a very key uh, a debate as to what the Talmud really wants here between Rashbam and the printers who who basically prejudiced us by putting those words Eitzel or the other Rishonim, I don't have to mention their names, I don't want to confuse things, but they are people who actually lived even before the Rashbam and afterwards. Okay, that's that point. Now we're going to the next point. And as I said, that was 11 lines from the bottom. Now we get to 10 lines from the bottom. Ben Eitzel Oviv Boy Haseba. Now here, the words Eitzel Oviv seem to be in all the texts. And this might be where the printers got a little bit confused. Here, when it's a son by his father, that's about submissiveness. What's the respect, the proper respect? Maybe a son should be in awe of his father. Let, let his father do all the body stuff. But he sits, yes, sir. Yes, this is the way I'm sitting. Yes, sit up. It's the way you sit by your dad. The Talmud is teaching us 
that on the night of Pesach, the bonds are loosened. Ben Eitzel Oviv, when the son is by his father, despite the respect you need for your father, boy, Haseba. Haseba is necessary. And the son needs to assume the position for matzah and for the four cups. Okay? That's the, this is the novel point that we're saying, that the son has a son's relationship with father is not weakened. We think it's strong enough. Because in many ways, although you fear your father, you respect your father, and he loves you, and he wants you to become a man who can lead a Seder himself. And therefore, doing the same thing dad is doing is important. And it doesn't minimize the respect. But now we get to the Talmud's question. Meaning not just the statement that's important to absorb, but the question. And the question is, this is a key Gemara phrase. If you, if you have your line by line out, you should translate it. If, you, if you've printed this page, you should underline it. The question was asked by them. is by them or to them. Them is the yeshiva. <laughs> them is everyone out there, meaning the, the school, the academy. Iboi means it was asked. They were wondering. It was a question that was raised in the Talmud Academy. Those names are unknown. We don't know which academy, but we know it was a question that was going around. It was a big question. Iboi lehu. The question was asked to them. What was the big question? Eight lines from the bottom. Talmud mai. What about a student and his teacher? That might be different than a son and a father. A father, and, and again, a father and a son, it's about watch what I do, become like me. I'm giving over the tradition to you. A student is a little bit different. A student, although he might love in many ways his teacher, there's a there's there's there is a barrier that's not broken, right? Uh, you don't have the familiarity. You don't walk into your right. You don't run into your rebbe's bedroom when you have nightmares and crawl into bed with him because right and or 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 tell him how you were insulted, and 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 and, and the bully in, in school is bothering you. Don't do that. You do that for your father. Now, you love your Rebbe, but you respect him and you keep a distance. And part of the reason the way it works is because the Rebbe and the student have a certain, there's a certain fear level. There's a certain sense. I look at my Rebbe. Remember, I spoke what rabbi means. I look at this man who has so much knowledge and I'm supposed to get it from him. I need to be careful with my relationship with him. I, I can't assume too much. There's no blood here. But but he has gifted me. He's willing to gift to me the reservoir of his brains and his knowledge. I've got to be careful in this relationship. And therefore, in yeshiva, what better place than for yeshiva to ask this question? What's our relationship here if we happen to be lucky enough to be by our Rebbe for the Seder? What's the positions we should assume? Can we assume this languorous, aristocratic, all-the-time-in-the-world position? like our Rebbe is doing. What should it be like? That was the question.
So, and that's why it says, Talmud Eitzel Rabo Mai. And on that, here's another key Gemara word, and you can see it, it's, uh, it's, it's only described here, I have my cursor on it, it's two letters, and, and in between each letter, in, there is, in between the two letters, we have, remember, the streichel, as it's called, the two dots, the two apostrophes, whatever, you know, like, like quotation marks. That stands for the words ta shma. And that's a key Gemara word. Ta shma. Come and listen. Come and hear. There was for years a website, still out there, a Christian website called Come and Hear, uh, which is, uh, where you can get a lot of the Talmud in English and the Sansino. Today it's, it's, it, there's so much other stuff available, but for years I used it and for my students a lot. It's the Come and Hear website. So, Toshma, come and hear. Let's hear. So, let's see what it is. So, we're going to prove this not from a, a pasuk, which is a lot of times what Toshma is. Toshma means, let me explain. The question's good. I can't answer it. Let's go to a higher source. Let's go to a, a verse in the Torah. Or usually what follows the words Toshma is a Tanatic source, a source from the Mishnah, the Brita, the Tosefta. Those are earlier sources. The Talmud is what was going on in, uh, by, uh, was going on among uh, Aramaic world. That was what the Talmud was. Um, hi, David. We're sort of, I'm sort of in the middle of a different class, but I'm sure you could enjoy this as well. We're going to be starting uh, on the same on the same station at about one o'clock, we're starting. So, uh, but okay. So, uh, I, I apologize. So we're gonna start one o'clock. Something else. But but here's the point, my friends. That um, uh, normally when you have Toshma, it's followed by a brisa, a mishnah. It's like I don't, I can't, I don't know the answer. I can't figure it out in my brain. So I'm going to figure it out with an earlier source. I'm going to figure it out with something early. Hello, Leon. We're, we're, uh, we're starting a little bit later today. We're starting around one. This is the end of, of a previous class, but I think you can enjoy it as well. So a Toshma is a, um, is, uh, always let me hear. Give me something to hear. Give me something earlier that I can bank on. And usually it's a Mishnah, Brisa, Tosefta, because the Talmud is really built by the Amaroyim. Those, those are the later people. Give me something earlier that I can base it on. In this case, we didn't have an earlier source, but we have a pretty good rabbi who means a lot, and that is Abaya. Abaya, the number two rabbi of his time. He was the Avis of his time. Abaya, Kiavinen Beimar, when he said, he said, when I was by my teacher, and by the way, this was his uncle. His uncle was Rabbi Bar Nachmeni. When I was by Mar, by the master, Zaginen Abirche Dadodi. So what I would do is, I remember we were all sitting there leaning on each other's knees. <laughs> we were all on each other's knees. There were so much, many of us, and we loved being there. And he was my uncle anyway, but he was my teacher. And we would be leaning. There wasn't any couches, and it was so crowded that we were sort of leaning over. And instead of 
our, our heads, our, our elbows leaning on a pillow. We were leaning, Zaginan means leaning, abirke, on the knees, the hadadi, of each other, which meant we were trying to assume the position in front of our teacher. Now, <laughs> Rabbah was the Rosh Hashiva uh, for a number of years, for, for about 20, almost 20 years, and then he passed away. And then Abaya's other teacher became the Rosh Hashiva. That was Rav Yosef. Kiatinan, when we came, because after our, our, our Rabbah died, the students, they didn't go home for Pesach. They, they loved being by their teacher. Kiatinan lebei Rav Yosef. When we came to Rav Yosef, who became the Rosh Hashiva, Amar Lon, he told us, because we wanted to act just like we did by Rabbah. When we came to Rabbah, what we did was we leaned. When we were by Rabbah, we did our leaning. And we did our leaning, even though we were cramped, and everybody assumed this awkward position. But when we came to Rabbi Yosef, Amarlan, he said to us, Lo tzrachitu. And maybe what that meant is, don't do it. You shouldn't be leaning. You, you, you shouldn't be in this position. Why? Mora rabcha, kimora shamayim. Now we get back to what we were talking about earlier this, in the session. You need mora rabcha. You need to fear your teacher as if you are fearing God. Now this is an incredible idea. <laughs> what, what Rabbi Yosef said to them. Because even if there's no teacher there, or it's you're with your father, God is there, isn't he? God is everywhere. God is at the Seder. Isn't, aren't you really, in a way, praying to God as well? It's like, a, it's, like, it's like a synagogue. It's like a shul at the Seder. Why aren't I scared? For Why am I more scared about my teacher than God? If you're saying that you have to fear your teacher like you fear God. And, of course, what this means I'm just finishing up here. I guess I wasn't clear to my other listeners. We are uh, finishing up that this previous class. So, but I think it's a good point anyway for those that are joining in. That somehow having a physical embodiment of what God represents makes you more scared and demands more from you than when God, when he's not there. So therefore, when you have your Rebbe there, you have to assume, a, even though it's not because you're scared of him, it's because of what he represents, but he is a living embodiment of the idea of God, of God's words. And therefore, you need to actually be, you have to sit there with a sense of fear, and it would be improper for you to be comfortable in front of him during that Seder. That's what Rabbi Yosef said to them. Okay? I have a question. Yes. Yes, Hanach. But if if Hashem is Hashem, and there's no no reason why we can't prostrate ourselves like we do on Yom Kippur before Him, so why why would you be afraid to lean uh, uh, on the Passover Seder? So I think the idea is, um, and again, this is what I want you guys to think about. We'll we'll, we'll take this up. We'll decide whether we're having a class tomorrow, but I want to uh, finish up here. I, I think this is the this is what's so fascinating. 
Um, I can't deny that when I have a physical teacher who I, a human being, I have to actually use different respect styles to him because he's physically in the room. <clears throat> With God, I'm imagining it. And even though I'm imagining him here in the room, I don't, I'm not forced physically to respond as if the human being is there. The human being who was Rabbi Yosef was a representative to all his students of what God meant. But you need to show a submissiveness and you can't, you can't act as if you're comfortable because there is the physical presence of the student and the teacher there. And therefore, in such a situation, a person, it would be counterproductive to actually do the mitzvah in that uh, aristocratic style. Because what's bigger than that is the respect you have to have for your teacher. Because the teacher, because once the balloon is punctured, it's different than a father. Once the balloon is punctured, you, there's no letting the air back in. That's why I was probably not such a great teacher <laughs> in, in elementary school and in, in other schools. Because they said, don't try to be their friend. You ought to be tough, 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 tough. Then when you show a little bit of friendliness, it works. You try to be friendly in the beginning, they're never going to respect you. They're never going to have that. And that's that's crucial. And of course, we love God, right? Yet, when it comes to a human being who's supposed to, you need to keep the, 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 uh, the levush. You need to keep that strong. Okay, so that's it for today, my friends. Think about what we've done. I'm- Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.